Well, again, good morning. Merry Christmas. Hey, that's pretty good. Last service, we had to kind of wake up a few people. It's good to see you this morning as we are in the Christmas season. My name is George Davis. Thank you for joining us. And for those of you who are new, thank you for joining us this morning as we kick off the Christmas season. I know, how many, how many of you already have maybe decorations up, your apartment, condo, home, or office? Right, we've already done that. And you can see we've done that here at church as well. So we're, we're in full swing to celebrate the Christmas story. But as we begin celebrating the Christmas story, I actually want to tell you a different story. It is the story of Nick and George. Now, this has nothing to do with any Nick or George that you know or any Nick or George around here. It's actually a story that's several hundred years old. It begins with a guy named George. He's a young guy in his early 20s. He's really, you know, just got a zeal for life and learning. He's a gifted mathematician after eating. Even in his early 20s, he's a professor at a university in Germany. And because of his love of learning and his desire to continue to grow in his academic abilities, he sets out on a quest. The quest is to travel different parts of Europe and to visit other people who have kind of innovative, progressive ideas, people that he can learn from. And, and so he heads out from his hometown in Germany and he begins crossing Europe. Eventually, he comes to a small community in the nation of Poland. He's heard of an individual here by the name of Nick. Nick is, is technically a medical doctor by training, although he's actually studied a number of subjects. And, and George had heard that this guy, Nick, even though he was, you know, just an amateur scientist, had some very innovative ideas about how the world actually worked. And so George tracks him down. And as it turns out, for the next two plus years, George becomes Nick's student to learn more about his ideas and his work. And in the course of Nick's life, George is the only student that he ever has. As the relationship continues to grow and it builds, George becomes more insistent in, in his interaction with Nick. You know what? You, you've got to publish your ideas. These are radically new ideas. The world needs to know what you are thinking. Nick is, is very hesitant. But over time, really, George just wears him down, right? Some of us have kids like that, maybe. You know, they just wear you down. And George wears Nick down, and finally Nick agrees. So the two of them work together to, to assemble his notes into a, a form that can be handed over to a publisher. George has already arranged for a publisher in Germany to, to take this and turn it into a book. And, and the day comes when, with this very precious bundle of papers and notes, George says goodbye to Nick and he heads out on a quest of several hundred miles to deliver this precious manuscript to a publisher who had already agreed to receive it in Germany. The book would, would come out about two years later. And it, it truly was a book, an idea that changed the world. You, you see, the George I, I've been talking about is this guy. His name is George Redicus. He became really a, an influential mathematician in his own right. 
And the Nick that I've been talking about is, is this guy. You know him as Nicholas Copernicus. And the revolutionary idea that was found in that book was the idea that our universe ultimately moves around the sun, not the earth. Now, my guess is most of us, we've heard of Copernicus before, right? Some, you know, some point in our schooling, okay, heliocentric, I remember that word, not sure what it means, right? We, Copernicus, we know he's an important name even if we don't know what it was all about. But it's also my guess you've probably never heard of George Redicus. And I tell you the story just to say this. You see, as it turns out, you knew the story, but you didn't know the whole story. This morning, as you can see, we're starting our journey to celebrate Christmas. And over the next few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas by working through a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's this passage, Isaiah 9-6. It's a, a passage where this Old Testament prophet anticipates the ministry of Jesus. And in Isaiah 9-6, we read these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, as you look at this passage, notice, first of all, that you, you do see the message of Christmas, right? There's the story of Christmas embedded in this ancient prophecy, right? To us, a child is born. And for so many of us, that's what, right? that's what we think about in, right at Christmas. It's the birth of a baby, but notice Isaiah doesn't stop there because he goes on to describe this individual with these amazing titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In other words, when we look at this passage, we don't simply see the Christmas story. We see the fuller story of who Jesus Christ would be and and why he would come and what he would do. And so over the next few weeks, we're, we're going to look at these four titles in this passage. And, and the invitation of this series is not simply to celebrate the Christmas story, but to celebrate the whole story. The story of the one who comes to be our Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So this is what we want to celebrate. And also for those of us that are, that are already followers of Christ, I think the, the invitation of this series is to remember that there are people around us. There, there are people, friends, family members, co-workers, fellow students, people in our neighborhood, people that we know from different spheres of life. There, there are people around us, they know the story. I mean, they know Christmas and baby and manger and angels and shepherds. We know that part of the story, but they don't know the whole story. I mean, they enjoy the holidays. They participate in different ways with friends and family, and they know the story of a baby who's born, but they really don't know the fuller story of, of why he came. And that's why for those of us who are Christians, even as we celebrate these titles, as we celebrate these stories, we must also see that 
right? We have a story to tell. This is why we're inviting you just to take a simple step of right, sending out Christmas cards and just sharing part of your story to people in your sphere of influence, the people that need to be encouraged by the message of Christmas. Now, as we come to these titles, as we start looking at them this morning, let me just begin by giving you a very simple historical context of what we are reading in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century B.C. And, of course, if, if you remember, by this time, that land that we refer to as Israel had actually divided into two separate countries. The, the northern part became what was known as the northern kingdom or Israel, and the southern part became known as the southern kingdom or Judah. And at this time, Isaiah is a prophet. He's a, a representative of God in that little country of Judah. When we come into Isaiah 9, the king at this time is a guy by the name of Ahaz. And even as Ahaz is on the throne of this little country, the, the looming major international threat is, is, a, is an empire known as the Assyrian Empire from the east. And Assyria is encroaching into this region. Assyria is expanding its kingdom into this region. And people in this little area are feeling the pressure. But the immediate threat to, to this little nation of Judah, the immediate threat to King Ahaz, actually comes from two countries immediately to the north who are putting a great deal of political and military pressure onto this little kingdom of Judah. And to be honest with you, under this stress, Ahaz is not handling it well. Some of us don't do well under pressure, and, and Ahaz is one of those guys. It becomes clear he's not really receiving wise counsel. Furthermore, he has no sense of trusting in God. He's just trying to figure it out on his own. And in this context, Isaiah comes with a message from God. And, and Isaiah tells him that ultimately the immediate crisis will pass. But Ahaz, is, he's just not listening. But as it turns out, Isaiah's message isn't simply about the immediate crisis. Isaiah ultimately has this message of, of ultimate deliverance and ultimate restoration. And that's what we're going to see in, in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, tragically, it is the case that, that both, remember, the little countries of Israel and, and Judah, because of their disobedience, they would experience the consequences. And that message is included in this, this book of Isaiah. But ultimately, it's not simply a book of judgment. It's, it's also a book of hope because Isaiah says, look, I see, I see this immediate crisis, but ultimately God is going to provide deliverance in an amazing transformational way. And yes, it may feel like we're stuck with poor leadership now, but one day an ultimate deliverer is coming. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 9, and this is where we read this, Right? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now pay attention to this. Because these, these geographical references are to the northern part of Israel. This is the part of Israel that due to trade routes and geographical location was most susceptible to foreign influence and foreign domination. As Israel kind of begins to walk in an unhealthy pattern, this is the area where that all starts. 
But notice the prophecy is one day this will also be the area from which the solution comes, right? But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, here's one of the reasons that's important. Next, next month, we're going to begin a journey through Mark's gospel. And as we go through Mark's gospel, you're going to see that Jesus situates, situates his ministry right in this particular region around Galilee. Centuries later, this prophecy is fulfilled in the location of Jesus' ministry. So Isaiah continues, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now this image of celebration even becomes more powerful with military imagery. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And the reason all of this is happening is because for us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's, it's powerful imagery. And, and as you read this kind of vivid description of ultimate victory, Today, let's just think for a moment about that phrase, wonderful counselor. Now, when, when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind? My guess is for most of us, we hear the phrase, wonderful counselor, we think, we think about a counseling relationship, right? We think about being in a relationship with someone who can help us think through life, who can help us process certain issues in our present, in our past, in our future, who can help give us the categories to think about them well, to engage them well, and you know, who can just help us think through the, the things that we're working through in life. But when you read Wonderful Counselor here, it, it's moving in a slightly different direction. The idea in this text, I think, is the idea of, of, of a counselor who is, who is really an advisor. It's, it's the image of kind of an advisor to a person in power. And I think in some ways this image stands in contrast to things said earlier in the book where it becomes clear that the king is not getting good advice. One translation translates it this way as it's describing an amazing advisor or an extraordinary strategist. And as you think about this wonderful counselor, arguably the term, the phrase moves in two different directions. First, it's the idea of, of a counselor and advisor who is wonderful. Who gives wise advice? Uh, for instance, I, we, we see the similar language later in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom it is magnificent. So to talk about a wonderful counselor is to talk about someone who, who is wise in the advice and counsel they give. But I actually think that the terminology used here moves in a, a second direction as well. And that direction is this. It's a counselor 
whose wisdom, whose words create a certain sense of wonder and amazement. Someone who helps you look at life in a totally different way. Someone who causes you to say, wow, I've never thought of that before. I have never looked at it that way. I've never seen it that way before. That, that's the wonderful counselor that, that Jesus is anticipating. Now, as you hear Isaiah say these words, once again, put yourself, you know, put yourself in this context, right? These are people feeling an immediate political crisis. They're feeling immediate political pressure. Now, where while their cultural situation is different than ours, the truth is there are certain seasons of life that you and I go through where we feel tremendously the weight of our circumstances, the weight of things in our lives. If you were, if you were, if you were with us last week uh, as part of our services, right, we, we actually had two areas on the back walls. One, we designated a wall of celebration, and you could put post-it notes up for things you were celebrating. And another was an area, a wall of lament, where you could put up kind of questions you have of God or prayer requests or concerns. And, and on each of these walls, we, by the end of the day, we had over 400 sticky notes. So I, I want to thank you for, I want to thank you for participating. Many of you did that last week, and just at a personal level, I just want you to know it was just kind of, it was helpful for me to, just to thinking about our church, the people of our church, just to read through some of these and, and to see some of the things that you guys are dealing with, some of the things people in our church are are carrying, some of the issues that are part of our lives. You know, for instance, here was, here was one of the sticky notes placed on that wall of lament. It says, the weight of all my responsibilities seems crushing. And I can't do it on my own. God, help me to trust you and rest in your strength. Right? I mean, some of us are facing some pretty heavy things. And by the way, if you put... put if you put something on the wall, I just want you to know that as a staff, we took those on Wednesday and we divided them up and we, we prayed through them because, you know, we're in this together. And, and I hope if you did put, put something on that wall, you, you can have a sense that whatever that weighty thing is, that there are other people that want to encourage me, to pray with me, to be a part of this journey with me. So even as we can feel the weight, the people of Israel felt the weight at this moment of this foreign threat. And as I said, Isaiah not only addresses the immediate situation, he also addresses kind of the ultimate deliverance that is coming. And it's almost like he looks at them and says, look, I know all you see right now is this immediate crisis, and I want to talk about that. But I don't want to simply talk about this immediate crisis. I, I want you to see that there is, there is an ultimate deliverer coming in the future. And among other things, he will be a wonderful counselor. He will cause people to look at life in a totally different way. So this is one of the angles from which Isaiah anticipates the coming of Jesus. He is coming as someone who will challenge you to look at life totally differently. He will invite you to look at life in a totally different way. And this is actually embedded in the Christmas story. 
Now, as you think about that, just, just think for a moment about how you look at life, right? And I realize that's a, that's a pretty reflective question, and maybe you say, I, you know, I never really think about how I look at life. But the bottom line is this. Each of us, whether we realize it or not, each of us has some strategy where we are trying to make life work. We have some approach to trying to find meaning, purpose, and happiness. Now, it's not necessarily something you think through rigorously, but just through, through how you think, through the choices that you make, where you spend your resources at time, whether you realize it or not, there's some underlying strategy where you're trying to flourish. You're trying to make life work. You're trying to live well. For instance, I think some of us, when we think about making life work and how to flourish and experience happiness, for some of us, we've got kind of a general path in mind, right? And, and we've got a sense of this is, this is what I'd like my life to look like. I don't necessarily all the details, but, you know, here's, here's the path I'm trying to follow, and here's some of the milestones along the way. And as long as I can stay on that path and, you know, keep working toward those milestones, that's, that's really given me a sense of meaning and purpose and direction in life. I have a son, uh, we have a son in college, and he's going to be doing an internship with a large um, consulting firm that works in the area of technology next summer. And I was intrigued because I went on the website of this company, and there's this promotional video that is geared toward prospective employees. And in that promotional video, there's a manager who is quoted as saying this to potential employees. He says, give me 18 months of hard work and I will make you more marketable than you have ever imagined. Now, I've got, to admit, I've got to admit to you, as a dad, marketable is good, right? <laughs> I like this. This is going to be good. Because as a dad, when I hear marketable, here's what I hear. I hear gainful employment after graduation. I hear financial independence in his future, right? And at some level, we can resonate with that. And I think for many of us, it's just natural. We've got this sense of I'm, 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 need, I'm needing to be on this path. And, and in our mind, we've got certain benchmarks of what we want to hit in terms of life, relationships, family, career, money. And, and that's, that's my approach to life. And so some of us, we're... we're, we're disciplined in following this. We can even be driven. And this is, this is kind of our sense of how life works and what happiness looks like. But in, in a group of this size, this is also true. There's some of us here that in all honesty would say, you know, I had a path. I thought I knew what it was and what it would look like. But my life hasn't unfolded that way. And, and maybe you would say, it feels like somehow I've gotten off the path and I don't know how to get back on. Or maybe you would say, it feels like somehow my life is wandering and I don't even know what the path should look like. And, it, and, it, I, and I'm so intimidated sometimes because it feels like everybody else has got it figured out. All the people in my peer group have it figured out but me. And, and so even as some of us are here and we've kind of got this sense of, oh, okay, I'm on the path and we're motivated by that. Others of us are here today and there's, there's a feeling of frustration, discouragement, maybe even despair and cynicism because somehow we feel like we're not on it and we're not quite sure how to find it or how to get back on it if we knew what it looked like. 
If you had talked to me when I was a college student, I could probably have told you, you know, here was, I had a pretty clear sense, at least at that time, of what I thought my life would look like. You know, here's kind of what the, you know, here's what the path will look like in terms of education and ministry. And, you know, I want to be faithful to God. But as long as I stay on the path, I, I felt like it was going to unfold just according to a certain plan. But interestingly, uh, during one of the summers while I was a college student, I spent some time working in a homeless shelter in, in downtown Dallas. And as it turns out, some of the people that came into this homeless shelter were people where if you heard their story, they would tell you, you know what, I once had a path. But here's where I got off. Here's where my life fell apart because of health issues. Here's where my marriage fell apart. Here's where my career fell apart and I found myself in financial circumstances that I never anticipated. And even as a college student then, I began understanding, well, maybe it's not quite as simple as I thought. So however you think about kind of happiness and flourishing and thriving, whether you feel like, you know, I'm pursuing this path and, and I'm on it and it's going well, or whether you feel like, whether you feel like, well, maybe I've gotten off and I'm frustrated. I'm not even sure why I'm in church because some of you maybe would say, you know what, I come to church and it feels like everybody else has got it together. That's what you think. It's not the truth. Trust me. <laughs> We're We've got some interesting stories here too every week. So if you feel like you're off the path, you're not alone. So thank you for being here. But however you look at this potential path, whether you're on it or not, hear again Isaiah's words that one day someone would come who would be a wonderful counselor. Someone would come who would say things that would strike you with an utter sense of amazement. Someone would come who would challenge all the traditional kind of working categories you have about how life works, and he would just amaze you with what he says about life. And can I suggest that in a real sense, what Isaiah is doing here is anticipating the teaching ministry of Jesus. For instance, when we turn right toward the New Testament, toward the story of Jesus recorded in the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first block of teaching material from the lips of Jesus that we encounter is found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 through 7 is this section of teaching material we, we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins this way, <laughs> Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> now let me ask you this. Who talks this way? Who uses language of poverty to say, this is the way it really looks like to live well? I have a colleague in uh, Kentucky, Jonathan Pennington, who's done a fascinating book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And I, Jonathan, I think, does a wonderful job of making the case that the underlying question that Jesus is arguing in the sermon is this. How can we experience true human flourishing? In other words, what this sermon is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is Jesus' answer to here's what it looks like to live well. Here's what it looks like to thrive. 
And the argument that Jesus is making is this. Through my work, I'm bringing about a new reality. He calls this new reality the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in light of this new reality, in light of the fact that this new reality is here, this is what it looks like to thrive. This is what it looks like to experience purpose and meaning and happiness. Now, it's going to overturn all of your categories. But nonetheless, Jesus says this really is what your life is intended to look like. And he begins all of that by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, interestingly, the language of of Matthew um, has deep roots in the Old Testament, even, even deep roots in Isaiah. And the idea of poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit, isn't simply lacking certain resources. It's it's also the inability to do anything about it. So in, in talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, this is where the life of thriving and flourishing actually starts. Jesus is saying this, blessed are those who realize they don't have it all together. Blessed are those who realize there is something missing at the core of who they are. Blessed are those who realize that there's something deep within that needs the work that only God can do. Blessed are those who realize that life is more than just how do I stay on this particular path. Life is more than just, okay, how do I encourage my son to do this internship well so that that can lead to a full-time job, so that that can, you know, go on and on and on. Blessed are those who realize that there's something more to life simply taking next steps on that path. Blessed are those who realize that God needs to do a work of transformation at the deepest level of who you are. And you see what Jesus is saying, and it's a radical message. It turns over so many of our categories. It really is an amazing counsel that he gives, but what he is saying is this. The good life starts by admitting your own poverty your inability to make life work on your own. In fact, as you read the opening section of of Matthew 5 that we call the Beatitudes, I think there's a flow to the statements. He talks about recognizing our limitations, invites us to mourn as we acknowledge our brokenness, and he wants us to acknowledge that things aren't as they should be. And you see through all of these words, Jesus is challenging me to look at life differently. He wants me to see it's not just about being on that path, however I have constructed it. There's some deeper work that needs to be done. And it's the work of being in relationship with God. It's it's the work of his spirit in my spirit that is now made possible because I've put my faith, my trust in him. You see, Jesus is saying the flourishing begins when I realize I can't do it on my own. He is challenging me to look at life differently. Now, hear me clearly. This doesn't mean that all the stuff on the path is unimportant. 
right? It doesn't mean that, well, therefore I can be irresponsible because none of this matters or it's wrong to seek to set goals and continue to move forward in my career or whatever. No, it's not that this stuff on the path is unimportant. But it is this, the stuff on the path is not of ultimate importance. Centuries later, a Christian leader and author by the name of Augustine would describe it this way. He says this, he said, the the problem is not, not that we love this stuff. He said, the problem is that our loves are disordered. In other words, reflecting on the words and the the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, he he came to realize that we we are to begin with a sense of our own need and dependence. Right, at the core of who we are, we, we need to begin with this need to be in relationship with God that's now made possible through the work of Christ, and that relationship is to be foundational to everything else. And and this relationship then shapes how I engage all this other stuff. It shapes how I approach family and shapes how I approach work and education and finances and resources. But Augustine said, if, if we leave Jesus out of the equation, our loves become disordered. And disordered loves produce disordered lives. Furthermore, I think when, where we start, when we start where Jesus starts, right, when we start with this understanding that, you know, that flourishing and thriving in life begins foundationally with an understanding of my need and understanding that I've been called in relationship with him and and when, when I understand that, when I come back to that, when I celebrate it, when, when I allow that to be foundational, it will produce a certain freedom in my life. Because what happens when, when I understand this relationship as I grow in it, as I you know, spend time pursuing him and building into this relationship, it causes me to understand that my ultimate identity is now found in this new relationship. It's not found in all this other stuff. And this means, among other things, when my path, whatever that looks like, starts to become complicated or when it feels like I've gotten stuck or sidetracked, it doesn't have to be devastating because I realize ultimately that my identity isn't found in the particular achievements that I make along the way, it is found in this new relationship. So as we begin this Christmas season, I invite you to see more than a baby in a manger. I invite you to see more than just shepherds in the field and angels in the sky. I invite you to see the one who comes and invite you to think differently about life. I invite you to see Jesus Christ as your wonderful counselor. With that in mind, 
here's how I want to pray for you this morning. First, I just I want to pray for, for you. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, it's great that you're here. Maybe you've come with someone or whatever brings you here. But the reality is you, ha you have yet to start this journey of following Christ. And whatever brings you here, I just want to thank you for being part of our church this morning. And encourage you to see that as, as Isaiah describes the coming Christ, it, it's, it's also an invitation to you. An invitation to put your faith and trust in him. But as Jesus says, it, it begins with understanding our own spiritual poverty and need. And so this Christmas, I invite you to do that, to see yourself as one for whom Christ has come. And to acknowledge your need and to accept his new life and forgiveness. For those of us who, who, are, who started this journey of following Christ, as I pray this morning, I, I, it's my prayer that in the course of this Christmas season, you'll be reminded of the work of Christ on your behalf, reminded of the truth that he, he invites you to live and think differently and that this can just, this season can, even this week, you can come back to that reality that as you think about the stuff in your life, whatever that is, that, uh, that I need to think through that in light of my new identity in Christ and this is where thriving begins. Furthermore, I, I want to pray for you that as we move through this Christmas season, that you can truly experience the freedom that comes from that new identity. The freedom that whatever your past looks like, your, your identity isn't rooted in the path, it's rooted in this relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that even in living this freedom, that, that you can just, you can live in and live out the, the grace of God even in the context of the relationships that are a part of your life right now. So with that in mind, let me pray. Let me pray for you. So Father, we, we begin this journey this Christmas of looking at these titles found in the book of Isaiah and we celebrate the reality that Jesus comes as a wonderful counselor. But in acknowledging that, we also acknowledge he's the one who comes who is challenging us to think differently about life. And Father, with that in mind, I pray, first of all, for those who may be here that have yet to start this journey of following you. I pray that, that, that they would just hear Isaiah's words <laughs> written particularly for them. That Jesus has come to be their wonderful counselor, their mighty God, their everlasting Father, their Prince of Peace. Father, I pray they would be willing to start where Jesus says we must start, with, with our own sense of inadequacy and brokenness. So that we realize this is a work that only you can do, but it's a work that you have done through Christ. And I pray that they would be willing to accept that truth this morning. Father, for those of us who have started this journey with you, I pray that this passage would simply remind us that Jesus has come to think us differently, help us think differently about life. And perhaps that's a simple truth that we've neglected recently. So may the Christmas season bring us back to that sense of core identity. May it bring, bring us back to the core reality of our relationship made possible through Christ. And in bringing us back, I pray that, that it would also 
liberate us with a certain freedom that comes only through Christ's work. Freedom that comes from knowing that's through your work that we now have a new identity. And Father, I pray that we could live in that freedom and live out that freedom in tangible ways this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.